0: get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. I first met writer Randy Boyd in print. In an essay he wrote for what was then called the Harvard Gay and Lesbian Review. It was the year 2000, and I was working on an updated edition of my Making Gay History book and searching for new perspectives to add to the book's original 1992 edition. Randy's perspective was a bracing one. In his essay, he outlined what he called his gay agenda, quote, to be myself wherever I go, no matter whom I'm around, whatever the circumstances, lock, stock, and barrel, all of me, including the parts that are gay and HIV positive." That radical openness was part of Randy's mission, in his life and work alike, to explode stereotypes of all kinds, about gay people, about Black people, about people living with HIV. As a strapping six-foot-four, 200-pound Black man, wherever he went, Randy was assumed to be an athlete and straight. So when it came to combating lazy stereotyping, he got a lot of practice. Randy was born in Indianapolis in 1962, the youngest of four children. He moved to Los Angeles to attend college, first at USC and then UCLA, where he studied sociology. After graduating, he worked for several years in broadcast promotion in Hollywood. But by the time I interviewed Randy, he was a full-time writer living in San Diego. So here's the scene. I arrive at Randy's tidy garden apartment just a few blocks from the ocean and in the flight path of San Diego's main airport. Randy and his dog Boomer, a lab mix, greet me at the door. It's easy to imagine that Randy's height, build, and demeanor lead people to believe that he's a professional athlete. But I wisely keep that thought to myself. Once we get settled in, I clip my microphone to the collar of Randy's t-shirt. I start by asking him about his experience of growing up in Indianapolis. Interview with Randy Boyd, Monday, February 19th, 2001. Location is the home of Randy Boyd in San Diego, California. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one.
1: The first seven years or so of my life, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. Uh, And then after that, we moved into one of the most integrated sections of the country, not only the city, um, and and successfully voluntarily integrated. So... um, Starting at age seven, I was around whites and blacks. But uh, I was never really enveloped by a lot of racism and racial tension. I mean, people pretty much got along. Of course, I was aware of the problems in our country. I mean, you know, having been a very small child in the 60s and seeing those images and, and so forth. But I didn't feel threatened as a black kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I certainly felt threatened if I revealed my, that I was one of they, because they did these weird things that straight people always told me about. Do you
0: remember growing up the first time you, you heard about gay people? Or um,
1: I remember, I have scattered memories of different incidences, such as my sister, the older know-it-all. We were driving down a street and she said, you know, that's a gay bar.
0: In Indianapolis. In
1: Indianapolis. In the 70s? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and then there was another time we were taking her to college, so I was probably about 13, and again, she's driving, and we see maybe an effeminate guy walking, and, and she makes a comment about his butt, and she says something like, you know, they like those kinds of butts. Um, what
0: did you think of, when she said that, what did you think? Did it apply to you in any way, or did it just not apply? At this
1: well, time? I mean, it totally, it totally applied. I've always identified myself as a lover of males. There were times when I didn't articulate it to anyone, including myself. There were times where if I admitted it to myself, I would think I'm a fag, because that was the word du jour back then. But it's just, you know, my heart and soul and every pulse and everything beats <laughs> with men. So I knew when, when I heard these references, I knew they were referring to something that I was a part of.
0: I imagine you were not perceived to be gay like some kids who are called names. really... Well,
1: I I think what I did in school was I was able to have two separate personalities. Um, Not that I was claiming straight, but I certainly wasn't claiming gay, and I would, would talk about girls and be interested in girls. I wouldn't really fag bash, so I was sort of a passive straight person, I guess you might say. And then the other part of me was like, "Oh God, I you know I want this best friend, this lover so bad, this male." And and uh, but it was all very inside of me.
0: So, did you, did you get through all of high school without telling anybody that what your thoughts and feelings were?
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, oh no, I, there was there was no outlet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There was no outlet whatsoever.
0: How did you wind up at USC? Was it a, a, a
1: uh, I wanted to go to a big school with the whole, you know, football and collegiate. You know, it was always very important to me to be popular and do the things the popular kids do and, and be one of the beautiful, popular kids. But I got to USC, and I was all set for this frat world, and they didn't have blacks in the, in the white fraternities. And I was there, the first week I was there, I was called nigger by a bunch of frat boys.
0: In September of 1980?
1: Correct. The first week before school and I'm with a a bunch of black kids and we're walking home and USC's in the ghetto, so you have to, you know, they told us to walk home in packs and we're going down fraternity row and we hear some laughing inside one of the windows and they hear our voices and so they stop and look out and then the guy goes, oh, niggers. And I'm like, just all I can think about is coming to California and dreaming of being a part of this. and, And in my mind, I definitely... I mean, I'm attra- I find myself being attracted to all races, but at that time I had this ideal version of this guy and he was definitely blonde and, and curly haired he was like Christopher Atkins in Blue Lagoon, which had been out the summer before, I think. Uh-huh. But, uh, so, and and this fraternity was Sigma Chi, which is a very, you know, it's like one of the biggest fraternities all, all, nationwide. And, and um, you know, so these were the gods on the mountain high, mm-hmm calling me nigger, the, one, the very ones I wanted to worship. Uh, and so I knew right there that you know that I wasn't going to be able to fit in as a black person. And I remember crying that week and knowing this wasn't the pace, place for me and I was going to have to leave.
0: Crying in your room by yourself? Or-
1: Actually, I went to the Coliseum, the uh, sports venue. I brought a bike and I rode it there and stood outside the gates where you could see the whole bowl of the Coliseum, and uh, just stood there and cried. You know, I was really standing there at, at the very shrine of, of, of what USC meant and what I wanted my college experience to mean. And I knew it wasn't the place for me, and I hadn't even been in the class one day.
0: So you thought it was over for you for at USC?
1: Yeah, and essentially it was. I got out of there two years later. You did. What yeah. were those
0: two years like, that?
1: Well... You know, I had a couple of goals when I, when I got to California. Number one, I was going to find my buddy right away. I thought he was going to be my roommate. I thought, okay, my roommate's going to be this gorgeous, blonde, curly-haired guy like Christopher Atkins, and we're just going to automatically be best friends forever and, and lovers. <laughs> and that didn't turn out. He, and, and I would be scouring the dorms, you know, figuring out, well, which guy is it? You know, which one kind of looks at me with a little bit of interest, you know? And, uh... And that wasn't quite working out. And so then I discovered, back in those days, they had the bathhouse listings in the yellow pages under bathhouses. (laughs) You can believe that. And so I looked up a bathhouse and went to one. You know, I'm 18, I've got urges, so I started going out. And in my mind, I'm thinking that somehow I'm going to try to meld these two lives together, my you know the side of me that's going out, and the side of me that's here in college. I mean, this is California. You know, there's gotta be boys like me. So um, the second year I was there, I was out on this foursome double date, straight double date, and uh, and I and I was really attracted to the guy, the other guy in the party. And we're at this October fest. Everyone's drinking beer, and and uh, you know I'm with my date, and he's with his date, and he he says to me, Randy, there's something I have to tell you. And he leans across the table and he's in, in my ear so no one else can hear, he goes, I think I'm gay. <laughs> but me and in my infinite wisdom, I just look at him and laugh like he's telling a joke. And then of course, you know, his, his moment of honesty and vulnerability just evaporates and then he too laughs. And we go back to this, you know, beer fest. Then we drive back to the dorms and we drop the girls off and he's at my place and we're just sort of sitting there and I'm like waiting for this to happen, you know, where somehow me and this guy would just somehow like these true cells would burst out of us like that little thing, an alien, you know, out of the stomach and simultaneously and we, you know, couldn't deny it anymore. But he just you know, eventually says, well, i got to go. And that was it. But then later on in the year, um, I was really, really ready to like, come out to him or to someone. And I made a date with him to have lunch. And so we go out to lunch. We're getting drunk at one of the student pubs. And uh, I say to him, remember back at Oktoberfest? You said, I think I'm gay. And he just exploded, like, what? No way, I'm not a fag, all that stuff, you know. And then he, um, after after feeling satisfied enough that he had proclaimed his non-homosexuality, he kept saying things like, you know, if you're gay, just tell me, are you gay, are you gay? And finally I said yes. And that was the first person I'd ever verbalized it to.
0: When did you... uh become aware that there was a gay rights movement, that um, you had any place in it. How did that evolve?
1: Well, I think the kind of life I've just explained that was very indicative of a good deal of my life, especially up until the age of 26. It was being very much in the closet, and what I what I thought of as my real world, and having this whole other life where I would dip in and out of, but it really wasn't real. It mostly happened at night and in places where I didn't want to be seen. Um, And I hated that. I hated lying. I hated pretending I was interested in girls instead of telling the gorgeous guy, you've got wonderful eyes, can we get to know each other?
0: So up until age 26, this is already 1988, and um, well, and now in the 80s, you add the issue of HIV.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Were you aware already of that issue in the 80s?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, I was aware of it. The first time I was aware of it was sometime 83, 82, 83. Uh, I was tricking with a guy, we had just finished, and we started talking about, you know, VD and whatnot. And then he said, "Yeah, and there's this new thing that can kill you." And I'll never forget that, and I'll never forget those words. I mean, it was such an alien thing, I, you know. It's so I was aware of it, um, although I certainly didn't get the facts and the information. I got the true story, the real story, when the rest of the world did in the fall of '86, when Rock Hudson. Uh, announced that he was, was that 86 right. certified? Yeah. I, that's when I really got the story. So between 86 and 88, I was definitely aware of what was going on.
0: But what was it that happened in 88 that pushed you over the edge?
1: Of- well, for one thing, there was an earthquake in L.A., and it was the first real kind of earthquake that I had been in. Um, so that made me, it, it made me co- confront death a little bit. You know, what a quake does, it, it cracks the ground and things come out of it. Well, that earthquake cracked in my mind mentally and my fear of death but by AIDS, of course, came out. And I knew I was at risk because I had plenty of um, casual, anonymous, marginally safe or unsafe sex mm-hmm. um, because I didn't get the safe sex message because I wasn't in the gay community. Um, in that way in that sort of active interactive reading the newspaper finding out things way i was only in the gay community in the sexual venues um and i had a period of night sweats in 85 too and i'd heard enough about night sweats to know that was a potential um symptom and uh then i i think it's also just a matter of growing up you know so by the end of 87 I was definitely making some life altering changes and really focusing on the things I wanted to do in life and I started coming out to my family, friends, and coworkers. That was a very powerful time to be who I am without any reservations or hesitations mm-hmm. to the people that I look in the eye every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in
0: eighty eight you tested.
1: I I got tested. This
0: is after you come out to your colleagues.
1: Right. Um, got tested, was positive.
0: But that wasn't something you shared with people at work? Or no. You shared with anybody.
1: Well, I shared it with my mother right after I got the news that same hour, um, and then shared it with family members shortly thereafter. And I think for quite a while I still kept it a secret from everyone else, um, because I still remembered the years where they were saying, don't get tested, you know. Uh, the Reverend LaRouche, if you know about California politics, was trying to quarantine people for a while. So there was you know, still some concerns there. But eventually um, in 90, I, my, I was healthy, fairly healthy in terms of all the significant numbers when I first got tested. But by 90, my numbers were really starting to decline steadily. And the only thing I could, could contribute it to was the stress at work. I worked in Hollywood uh, in a department of a major studio that surprisingly was very straight. Uh, So I left the job, and when I left, I came out as being HIV positive in a staff meeting as everyone's getting up to go, and I go, one more thing. (laughs) I'm leaving after five years, and here's why.
0: And what was the reaction?
1: Oh, they were all stunned. You know, they were all just, you know, it was like, the little mini Magic Johnson thing before that ever happened, a year or so before that. And and then one by one, you know, they would come up to me in the in the next week that I had still there and, um, you know, pledge their undying support. And they would offer me money and food and, you know, <laughs> As if I were suddenly homeless or something, but it happened to be that I was leaving right around the time of my birthday and another fellow's birthday, so they they threw us a simultaneous little you know five-minute birthday thing with a cake and everything. and we were all gathered in, in someone's office to do this, and it was a larger office, and there's maybe 15, 20 people, and it comes time to blow out the cake and And so me and the other guy do it. And then suddenly nobody wants cake. Not a soul.
0: But you just blew out the candles.
1: <laughs> yes, and then this one gal comes in, she came in late cause she was still doing some work. So she comes in late, you know, so she's oblivious to the fact that I just blew out the cake and everyone had, it was like frozen, uh, standing against this wall, very erect. Like they were just, you know, trying to back out of the room. And so she comes in, oh, okay, there's cake. I missed the singing, but now there's cake. And every, you could just see the terrified look on everyone's face as she's getting this piece of cake. And, you know, they were just all dying to scream,
0: no! <laughs> they didn't.
1: They didn't. And, you know, I she got the cake and she ate it.
0: Was she the only one to eat cake? Or others took her leave then?
1: Oh, no, no. no. I think maybe the guy who was blowing out the candles with me ate it. Or got a piece, I don't know if he ate it. But no, that cake stayed there untouched. I'm sure it was thrown away.
0: How did that make you feel?
1: Like shit. Uh-huh. If they were going to be that scared, why the fuck did they buy a cake in the first place? Yeah. What did they think was going to happen? And put candles on it. And it was for me. What did they want?
0: Um, you're still here. It's, 90, it's uh, <laughs> 2001. And a lot of people who have nights, what's '86 or not or 87, mm. are not here anymore.
1: Yeah. It was actually
0: 85.
1: 85? <laughs> That's even the percentage. But right. said so your
0: numbers began to fall in the, in the late 80s, early
1: 90s. Yeah, I've been through very many ups and downs health-wise. I've been hospitalized once. Um, but I actually realized um, late last year, I actually realized um, that I'm not going to die of AIDS. Because if I was going to do that, it would have happened a long time ago. Now... That, I say that, but I also want to add that that may change. But that's how I feel now. Um, But certainly, I mean, how could I not have been HIV positive? I turned 18 in 1980, a month after my 18th birthday. In February of 1980, I go to my first bathhouse, and I start going to these sexual venues as my only real way of defining myself as a gay man. Um, you know, so I went for social and sexual reasons and by God, let's face it, we all need sex. And when you're young, you really need it bad. There's no way in the world I couldn't be HIV positive, but that doesn't mean, um, I have to die from it.
0: The day after I interviewed Randy Boyd, he sent me a follow-up email about an AIDS vigil he attended in the late 1980s outside Los Angeles County's General Hospital. At the vigil, he met an old man who shared with him stories of gay life back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. The old man turned out to be Harry Hay, one of the lead founders of the Mattachine Society, the first sustained LGBTQ rights organization in the U.S. Randy was in awe of having crossed paths with history and called the encounter one of the defining moments in his self-discovery as a gay person. You can read the full story on our website. Since I interviewed Randy more than 20 years ago, he's written numerous essays and short stories and published four novels whose main protagonists are black gay men living with HIV-AIDS. That much I was able to learn from his website. But my efforts to find out more about what Randy's been up to have come up short. Emails and messages to him have disappeared into the ether, and various other leads led to dead ends. Randy's last blog post is from December 2020, and he hasn't posted on Facebook since March 2021. But if Randy's taught us anything, it's to not make assumptions. So I hope one of you can help me track him down. If you have any idea what happened to Randy or know where he is, please email me at hello at makinggayhistory.org. For one thing, I'd love to tell him that, like Harry Hay, he's been featured in a Making Gay History episode all his own. I bet he'd get a kick out of that. Thank you to everyone who makes Making Gay History, including story editor Inga Detaya, associate producer Ali Lemer, audio engineer Kathleen Conti, researcher Brian Faree, genealogist Michael Leclerc, photo editor Michael Green, and our social media producers Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Special thanks to our founding editor and producer Sarah Burningham and our founding production partner Jenna weiss at Pineapple Street Studios. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you to the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division for their assistance, and thank you to Con Edison for their generous support of our education work. Season 10 of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, the Kipper Family Foundation, Christopher Street Financial, Mary Cadigan and Lee Wilson, Brian, Christine, and Alex White, Hal Brody and Don Smith, and scores of other individual supporters. You can find all our previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature at makinggayhistory.com. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter so you know what's coming up next. I'm Eric Marcus. So long and until next time.